Thanks for joining us here at KVCR for KVC Arts, arts and entertainment, as well as the people and places providing it. I'm David Fleming. Tonight we'll hear from Brian Christian, author of Algorithms to Live By, an exploration of the workings of computer science and the human mind, and filled with practical advice about how to use time, space, and effort more efficiently. First, though, the coasters. The Coasters may be known best for a string of novelty hits, Yakety Yak, Charlie Brown, Along Came Jones, and many more, ended up based in New York, but they actually started in this region. I'm joined now by Leon Hughes, born in 1930, the last surviving original member of the Coasters, performing in the area soon with his Coasters. Leon will touch on the Coasters and the Robins and other groups you were involved with, but uh, first, you actually started quite young, performing with your parents? Yes, I did. Wings over Jordan. That was a spiritual choir. From about five or six up until about 14. Now, tell us, if you would, about the Hollywood Flames. Uh, this is, of course, before you work with the Coasters. Folks outside of Watts may not know about this. Yeah, we started that in Barrel House. They had, they had a lot of talent shows. So we all just uh, started singing on the street corners and then went into Barrel House and started singing there, and then we won first prize. We started calling ourselves the Flames. Going on to the time with the Coasters then, you were there at the very beginning of the Coasters with all of the first big hits and one of the first big ones down in Mexico. I have to say, that really always had the sound of something to be used for, a, say, a TV show or a movie or something. And of course, Quentin Tarantino ended up using it in 2007 for a movie of his, Death Proof. But originally, beyond just telling a story, was there any dual purpose to this tune, like for soundtrack work? No, it wasn't. What we was done at the time, we were just picking stuff to do. That was big down in Mexico. We all started to kind of dance off of it. And so we couldn't make out the dancing on it, so then we just said to heck with it. We're just going to go on and leave it like it is and just start singing. He wears a red bandana, plays a cool piano, in a honky-tonk. Again, all leading up to the coasters, I have to say that by the time you were playing, at your age, you could have easily been playing, say, tenor for the Basie Band, or, you know, really the pop music of the time. What got you going in the direction of R&B? Well, we really didn't know we were going into R&B. We were just doing something. Everybody loved to sing, and we were just on the corners and getting together and going out singing, and that was it. We didn't know we were really going into rhythm blues. So at that point, it was just what people were doing. It wasn't even called that at that point yet. No, uh-uh, it wasn't. All right. Just that the guys just loved to sing, and they just loved to get out and do it. Do you remember by chance the first time you heard the term rhythm and blues? You know, you were already doing it, and then somebody started calling it R&B. I don't, because we was on the road when we first heard it. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. You were also, before the coasters, a part of the Lamplighters. Had the Lamplighters broken up before the formation of the coasters? No, they had So were you pulled away from the group then for the coasters? Yes, I were. In fact, it was the Robins before I went into the Coasters. Bobby was singing with the Robins at the time, and so they needed a tenor. 
So then he was a partner of mine, so they called me and said, would I come over and help him out? So I went over and started helping him out. And after I started helping him out, they just said, well, why don't you just go on and leave the lap and come over with us? So I said, okay, Bobby, because he was a real good friend of mine. So I just went with him. And so when you joined up with him, uh, were they still the Robins at that point then, before becoming the Coasters? Yes, uh-huh, they was the Robins. And then after that, we turned into the Coasters. Okay, okay. You'd been singing and playing for quite some time before the Coasters. I have to ask, I've been fortunate, I think, to have interviewed Mike Stoller some years ago. Uh-huh. And when you first uh-huh. encountered Lieber and Stoller, I'd love to know what struck you as different, uh, particularly regarding the songwriting. I mean, for you... These were the guys that gave us Hound Dog with Big Mama Thornton, for example. I didn't think too much about them at first because when we were done, we were just going on recording, you know. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know where that they really wrote all that stuff until after we got in with them because they had a lot of stuff there on paper. And we really didn't know if it was all them or whoever during the writing until after later on, then they told us that they had done all the writing on that stuff. So they were more like writers for Atlantic Records as opposed to writers for the right. Drifters and writers for the Coasters and all that. Right, right, right. Well, you did eventually meet them, and here's something else. Charlie Thomas described them as the guys that would be walking into the studio wearing two different colored sneakers or different colored contact lenses and stuff like that. That was Jerry. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that was Jerry. You ended up leaving the coasters, but was your departure from the coasters actually because of their departure for New York? Well, yes, some, because I had a family at the time, and uh, my wife had started telling me that she wanted me to stay home more. Gotcha, gotcha. Then that's when I formed my own coaster group out here. Yeah, the Dukes. That was real cool. It was something that we all didn't know what was happening at the time. We was kind of in the dark behind that because the manager of those, he didn't ever want to show his face. We didn't know who in the heck it was. So it was kind of offset. Were there only a couple of singles released? I know of Looking For You and The Grocery Sir. I was surprised that this one didn't chart. It, it seems like it would be a crowd pleaser live. It was. It was a whole lot. That was one of the main things. What we did behind that was do a little acting with it because Bobby Nunn was a kind of a clown. This is Bobby again from the Robins and then with the Coasters, but he is right. also one of the guys that stayed on the West Coast when the rest of the guys went to New York. Right. He stayed with me. I have to say, too, the groceries. I I was raised on music of the 50s and 60s, and I have to say that I thought for the longest time this was either called Leg Bone or I'm sure going to get me some more. But groceries was just always a fun, fun tune. Now, after the Dukes, or maybe it was at the same time of the Dukes, you also had a couple of other groups with your brother, and then also with your brother and sister. What the is that? The celebrities, and then the Signals. Or were these going on at the same time as the Dukes? Yeah, I come off the road, you know, like we would be singing, and then when I come home, they said, "Well, we got a gig done over at this place." And I was still singing with them, also, my brother, and my sister, and them. Everybody was L.A. based, basically. Right. So many coaster songs. You were there for the first bunch of them, the, the first big, big ones, Youngblood and Searchin'. Later on, many of the coaster songs would justifiably be called novelty songs, some of the silly stories or goofball characters. This is after your time, things like Charlie Brown, Love Potion Number 9. 
I'm on a lot of that stuff when they first recorded it. Oh, yeah? Yeah, I'm on a lot of that stuff when they first recorded it. And what they did, I left. And what they did when they went back into the studio, they just added over top of my voice or dropped my voice and put Kania's voice in there instead. After they made the move to New York and you were no longer part of the group, what were some of the Coasters tunes that really caught your ear? They were still getting national attention. Yes, and I was on some of that stuff like Shop for Clothes and Little Red Riding Hood. Just a lot of those novelty stuff that we were done. Yak Yak, when it first got started, I was on that. And then they just took my voice off and put Kanye's voice on there. Is it still your sax? Yes, uh-huh. Okay. okay. <laughs> All right. I can't get you out of my mind. While I'm thinking about it, what was the decision as far as who would provide vocals, who would provide what kind of lead? Did it just depend on who fit which voice? That was it, what fit the voices. So there wasn't any one lead singer, because I really got confused on looking for who was the lead and who was more of a support. It was all of you guys. Yeah. Well, Carl and I, at first, like this thing down in Brazil, Carl was leading at the top, and then I was leading on the bottom. It was a dual thing. Gotcha. Completely dual. A lot of that stuff, but we were doing it like that. You were again out of the coasters by the time of the British invasion, but you were still recording and performing. Did this new wave of music, as it were, change what you were doing, or, or at least how often you could do it musically? It didn't ever change. Okay. Some of the guys from the doo-wop era made a lot of adjustments when this different music was coming out. But then also folks like Sonny Turner, he said that they didn't really change. They just kept on going yeah. the way they were. Well, you know, he made a change himself. Because when he started doing his stuff by himself, then he started doing a lot of performing. A lot of dancing and stuff like that. Before, he was just he was a standstill. He did mention that Motown actually affected the sound more than the British invasion. Right, yeah. right. Well, later on, if you could help me sort out the groups, these are all you, but I've got listed in front of me the Coasters 2 Plus 2, the world-famous Coasters, Leon Hughes Sr., and the fabulous Coasters, etc. There, there's several out here. When were these groups starting to happen? I, I'd like to know when you, in essence, was, came back to Coaster's music. That was in the 70s. Okay, all of these different groups. And it, I guess it just depended on where you were performing or what lawsuit was going on at the time or whether or not you were allowed to use the name. Right. One of the early Coasters hits, I don't remember if you were part of the lineup or not at that point, but Smokey Joe's Cafe. I was on it. Okay. Then that uh, much later on, I mean in the last decade or two, was turned into a musical review that people can go out and see today. And I want to know right. if you've caught it. Have you uh, seen Smokey Joe's Cafe? Yes, I have. It was nice. I liked it. We saw it in Reno. So you think they did it justice? Yes, I do. I really do. Well, but you know what? See, we did Smokey Joe's Cafe with the Robins first. I didn't know that that was a Robins before Coasters. There's a lot of crossover there between these two no, early we, groups. We, we did that before we did it with the Coasters. Oh, my goodness. What are some of your favorite Coasters tunes to perform? And again, whether or not they were from the early years or the later years, just for you to have fun with. Searching, mm-hmm. Charlie Brown, Long Came Jones. Of course. That's really about the comfort part that we do. Is that pretty much the same answer if I were to ask what gets the crowd going the most, the ones that they're most excited to hear? Yes, indeed. 
Well, getting away from the coasters for just a second, you were born in 1929. And with that, you saw the beginning of R&B and you saw the beginning of rock and roll. And now you've also seen what these genres have become drastically different than the early days. And so I'd love to hear your thoughts on it, whether it's the accepted evolution or if it's, oh my God, what have they done? No, it's accepted because everyone does what they feel. It's like an entertainment art. You, you can go out sometime and you can feel like wanted, and then the other time you feel like you don't want it. But point, you still have to do it that way because the people, you know, you have to satisfy the people because you want to come back to see them again. You don't want the first time to be the last time. That's an excellent point. With the coasters, again, there's so many upbeat, fun, fun tunes. Do you have regular openers or closers? I'm going to call Yakety Yak if I had yes. to call a closer. That's it. Yeah. Yakety Yak is the closer. Oh, beautiful, beautiful. All right. Now, on your website, I'd like to read this, and that is a special note from Leon. In October 1955, myself, along with my friends Carl Gardner, Billy Guy, Bobby Nunn, became the original members of the Coasters. Since then, there have been numerous performers, tribute bands, and even a few imposters who have tried to capitalize on the name and the fame that Carl, Billy, Bobby, and I started almost 65 years ago. And while Carl, Billy, and Bobby have passed on, as the last original member of the group, I take great pride in carrying on the tradition and the music that made the Coasters famous. Such a beautiful statement, Leon. Thank you. Thank you. When you hear other groups, let's call them imposters for just a second, but when you hear other groups performing the music of the coasters and they're even trying to build themselves as the coasters, are you able to step back just a bit and go, well, they're still promoting the music, they're still keeping it alive, or is there too much of the, they're calling themselves the coasters, they're not even 35 years old yet? Don't hold back. What I like about it is that they, they're still doing it. They're still carrying it on. Like when I'm in the audience and they know that I'm there, they recognize me. And that really means a whole lot. Absolutely. Have you ever been surprised people uh, will call you out and say, hey, there he is? Or do you uh, often yes. know about it? Yeah? A whole lot. <laughs> <laughs> yes, a whole lot. This has been really special, but I appreciate your time, and I look forward to seeing you. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Leon Hughes, the last surviving original member of the Coasters, Yakety Yak, Charlie Brown, Searchin' and more. He'll be performing in the region soon as part of Legends of Doo-Wop and Rock and Roll Volume 3, along with Terry Johnson's Flamingos, the Dukes of Doo-Wop, Kathy Young, Jay Siegel's Tokens, and emceed by comedian Scott Wood. More at AffordableMusicProductions.com. David Fleming, you're listening to KVC Arts on 91.9 KVCR, streaming live at kvcrnews.org. Let's go now to a recent book, All Things Relative, a book filled with practical advice about how to use time, space, and effort more efficiently in exploration of the workings of computer science and the human mind. Emmanuel Rogers has more. Joining us today is co-author of the book, Algorithms to Live By, I'm joined today by Brian Christian. Thank you for joining us, Brian. Absolutely. My pleasure. <laughs> All right. Now, Brian, it may seem like deja vu, 
But your book, Algorithms to Live By, states that using computer algorithms can help us make choices in our daily lives. First off, what is an algorithm? It's one of those words that seems intimidating to some people, but it's really just a sequence of steps that you take to solve a problem. So we learned algorithms in school for long division, and we use algorithms when we're baking bread from a recipe. So it's really just a sequence of steps you take to solve a problem. Okay. Well, how are these programs from computers useful for helping me to make daily decisions, and what are the limits of its use? Right. This is one of the things that I think people find surprising is that, you know, we have all these problems in daily life that we think of as kind of uniquely human problems. And the premise of this book is that they're not. They actually correspond to some of the fundamental problems in computer science, which means there's an opportunity for us to learn something about how to make better decisions in our own lives. And one of my favorite examples is, you know, every day when we decide, for example, where to go out to eat, we have a choice between going to one of our favorite restaurants and trying something new. And, you know, we understand intuitively that a life well-lived is a balance between, you know, doing the things we know and love, but always being open to trying new things. And computer science offers us an ability to say what that balance should actually be. There's this problem in computer science called the explore-exploit dilemma, which is exactly this. It's how do you divide your time between doing the things that you know you like and trying new things? And this algorithm is going on behind the scenes at places like Google and Facebook. And there's an opportunity for us to really learn something about daily life by thinking about how they do it. Well, now, how does emotions play into this? Because I'll use Star Trek for an example. We know that Mm -hmm. Spock was a very practical, emotionless guy. But Mm -hmm. how does making emotional decisions work with using a computer algorithm? We have this notion that computers are kind of infallible and in some way perfect. You know, they think everything through all the way to the end. They consider every possibility. They always give us the right answer every time, no matter how hard they have to think. In some ways, these are kind of outdated ideas of how computers work. They're the luxuries of an easy problem. But a lot of the most interesting problems in computer science are simply too hard for even million-dollar supercomputers to think every possibility through all the way to the end and come up with a correct answer every time. Okay. And so what computers do when they're up against this hardest class of problems is they do a set of things that actually looks a lot more like human decision-making, which is they try some things at random. They take chances. They take risks. They accept that they won't necessarily get the correct answer every time. They trade off between making a better choice but taking more time mm-hmm. versus making an almost as good choice in less time. And so they weigh the value of decision-making itself. And this looks a lot more like the kinds of things that we do when we're up against a hard problem. We tend to be a little bit more instinctive. We don't think everything all the way through. And so I think one of the surprising messages of this book is that we shouldn't beat ourselves up when we take that kind of an approach. In fact, computers do just the same thing when they're up against a hard problem. And that's an opportunity for us to both, on the one hand, just feel better about the strategies that we use, but also learn something by thinking more deeply about the nature of those trade-offs and seeing them as deliberate choices that have their own kind of wisdom in their own right. 
What are the dangers involved in people not making their own decisions? In other words, depending on a piece of technology that's also made by men who have their Mm -hmm. own failings. Absolutely. How much trust should we put into a program helping to guide our lives as opposed to putting trust in ourselves or getting counsel from other people? I think that one of the most important thematic things that comes up if you're explicitly turning to technology to give you an answer to a problem, computers can't tell you what you care about. Right. You know, if you're very explicit by specifying what your goals are, what you're trying to achieve, what are the things you value and don't value, then a computer can give you perhaps some guidance on the best way to achieve what you're trying to achieve. But it's up to you to define what your goals are. So this is a theme that comes up, for example, in our time management chapter, what's called scheduling theory. People sort of look for a master algorithm that's going to always tell you how to structure your time. But it always depends on what your goals are. So there's one algorithm. If you want to just get the most things done in the shortest amount of time, there's an algorithm called SPT. If you want to make sure that no single task goes too far past its deadline, there's a different algorithm called EDD. If you want to minimize the number of late jobs that you have, then there's a third algorithm. And so I think the deeper point here is that there's not just a simple, perfect answer that's applicable in every situation. It's up to you as an individual to articulate what are the values that you have. And then only having done that does the computer become a useful source of advice on how to get what you want. Ah, so the computer, more than just thinking of it in this way as an algorithm that teaches us or tells us what we should do, it's more as a tool like any slide rule or like any pencil for an architect. It's just a tool that we have to think about how we're going to use first and then give it the information and try to get the answers. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. Yeah. Only after we define where we're trying to go, then algorithms become helpful at getting there faster. But it's up to us, you know, to point the car in the direction that we want to go. Okay, because I was going to ask you about trust and these algorithms, Mm -hmm. because like many people, I have trusted, you know, MapQuest, Google and other things to lead (laughs) me somewhere and found out, boy, are we in the wrong place. Okay, so we have a tool and we need to learn first how to use this tool and then what we want this tool to do for us. Right, that's it. And no computer can tell you, you know, what your own values are, right? Right. So you have to kind of start from that point. And so I think that's something that's maybe counterintuitive for a certain of us that, you know, like I said, in time management chapter, I think it's tempting for us to say there's some correct way to be doing all the things that I'm trying to do in a day. What's the correct way? What's the answer? And the verdict from computer science is that before you can even begin to ask what's the correct order to do the things that you want to do, you first have to ask an even more fundamental question, which is just what are your goals? What are your values? What's important to you? Is it important to get just as many things done as possible? Or are there things that are simply more important than other things? And then those less important things just have to wait. And so only you can answer those questions for yourself. But having done so, then there is a set of strategies and techniques from computer science for doing what you want to do as effectively as possible. Now, before I get to the next question, Brian, will you tell our listeners where they can go to find out more about Algorithms to Live By and your work and Tom Griffith's work? Yes, absolutely. The best place would be algorithmstoliveby.com, where you can see a lot of information about the book and also a little bit more about myself and my co-author, Tom Griffiths. The best place to find out about my other work is my personal website, which is brian-christian.com. 
And the best place to find out more about Tom would be if you go to the University of California, Berkeley Psychology Department, and you can learn all about Tom's lab there and the work that he does. Okay, so in going to algorithmstolivby.com, we can also find out more about Tom and where he's working and a little bit about his bio, right? Exactly. All right, thank you for that. Now, I have a question that, even though I was looking through the book, I'm still wondering, what do computers have to do with the mind of others? Will you explain this term and Mm. what it means to us personally? Absolutely. A lot of the biggest decisions that we make involve not only thinking about a problem that's just out there in the world, but involves taking into account the thoughts and feelings of other people. And this is one of the most complex and most involved areas in computer science. There's this idea in computer science called recursion, which means I'm trying to simulate what you're thinking that I'm thinking that you're thinking that I'm thinking. You know, it's one of these things where you can really just go down this endless well, and these end up being some of the hardest decisions that we have to make. And so the final chapter of the book deals with what we call computational game theory, which is a way to think differently about these kinds of interpersonal interactions. And earlier, you brought up the word trust. Right. And that turns out to be one of the absolutely key components in these kinds of group decision-making. So one of the examples that we give is if you go to an auction, let's say we're auctioning a house, everyone writes down a bid, and the person with the highest bid wins the house, and they pay the price that they wrote down. Well, this is a pretty complicated situation because I don't want to just write down the highest price I'm willing to pay. I want to sort of think about what do I think you're going to put down. I mean, ideally, I'll just bid $1 over that, right? If I could read your mind, that would be the best strategy for me. But I can't read your mind, and so you're trying to think about what am I bidding, I'm trying to think about what you're bidding, but neither one of us is just kind of being honest. Neither (laughs) one of us is just like stating what we feel like we are willing to pay for this thing. Right. And there's this idea in computer science called the revelation principle, which is any situation in which you and I are really spending a lot of time trying to get inside each other's head, Mm -hmm. any situation like that can be transformed by changing the rules of the auction in this case into a situation where the best possible thing for us is just to be honest. All right. Now, so according to Algorithms to Live By, the computer can really help us in daily living. What do you hope that your readers will take away from your book for daily application? I think really there's three main takeaways here. The first is just a set of practical rules. We talk about apartment hunting, you know, how many apartments should you look at before you decide and and pick something? And the answer is exactly 37%. So there's this set of extremely concrete pieces of advice, which unlike the advice in most self-help books, is backed up by proofs. I think at a bigger level, the book offers us a vocabulary, a way of thinking in a new way about these everyday problems and kind of seeing them in a new light. At the biggest level, it offers us just a new way of thinking about rationality itself. You know, as I said, we have this idea that being rational means thinking everything through all the way to the end, but computer science offers, I think, a startling verdict on that, which is that that's not the case, that being rational means not always thinking as hard as possible, sometimes trusting our instincts and knowing when to trust our instincts. All right, well, Brian, our time is up, but I want to thank you for taking a little extra time and sharing with us about using this computer as a tool and not just a window for YouTube to get into our house. Exactly. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. 
That was Emmanuel Rogers in conversation with Brian Christian, author of Algorithms to Live By. Once again, more at algorithmstoliveby.com, also brian-christian.com. And with that, we wrap up another edition of KVC Arts. Thanks again to Emmanuel Rogers and Brian Christian, as well as to Leon Hughes, and with that to Nathan Gothels of Affordable Music Productions for originally getting me in contact with Hughes. Here at KVCR, thanks to Lillian Vasquez, Rick Dulock, and Shereen Awad. Music beds and themes heard on KVCR. It's composed and performed by Sean Longstreet. So thanks to Sean as well. Many past shows can be found through iTunes, Spotify, and NPR One. And most past shows are at kvcrnews.org arts. I'm David Fleming. Thanks especially to you for listening and for your support. <laughs>